end of July, we're going to be looking at a chapter of Titus a week. My biggest regret um, with the book of Titus is that we're not going to be spending 12 weeks in Titus. It, it is chock full of transformative truth for us. Um, but we're not going to be able to spend all of our time in all of the details of that truth because we're, we're choosing a whole chapter um, per week. So we're going to start in chapter one today. Um, and as you uh, c- kind of find that, um, it's, it's right there in the, the middle of the epistles, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. Um, let me kind of set up our passage for today. Um, we have a family tradition. I have four kids, eight, six, four, and two next week. Um, he's probably screaming behind that wall right there. Um, but uh, we have a family tradition as a, as a family. Every Friday, we do Friday family movie night. Um, that's just a thing that we do. At least every Friday, or try to every Friday, watch an animated movie, we let the kids choose, watch our pizza in front of the TV, and just have a, a good slowed down time. And um, if, if you have kids, you know that what I'm about to say is, is not going to surprise you. But if you give kids a chance to watch a movie, they will watch the same movie week after week after week. No variation until we run that thing into the ground. Um, 2017, we watched uh, Cars with Lightning McQueen. I mean, every week for 52 weeks. But lately, um, they've gravitated towards a movie that I'm not going to complain about. I'm, I'm not upset about it. I, I love this movie. I think it's the second greatest animated movie ever made, behind Toy Story, by far number one, unarguable. Don't approach me. Um, <laughs> the second greatest animated movie, I, I can't watch it without it stirring emotion. Um, any, any guesses? Lion King. Lion King. No? Oh my goodness, Lion King. They've been gravitating towards Lion King, and it's been so good for us to watch. Um, if you haven't watched Lion King, you know, where have you been the last 30 years? Um, but Lion King, simple plot, you have a, a healthy, thriving king in the form of Mufasa, voiced by none other than James Earl Jones, you know, leading a thriving, healthy um, kingdom in the form of Pride Rock, and then we all know what happens. He has this, this brother who's embittered, ends up murdering his brother, um, and uh, takes over Pride Rock. And what happens to Pride Rock under the leadership of Scar? It disintegrates. It, it grows into this wasteland, and the whole remainder of the movie is about this rising up of Simba to challenge, right, Scar to take over leadership of Pride Rock. But the point of all this, and what I've been again, looking at this movie through the lens of, is this principle. Everything rises and falls on leadership, right? We, we've heard that before. It's a maxim. Everything rises and falls on leadership. The, the health of Pride Rock was dependent upon the health of its leadership. Business, it, it applies. Military, it, it applies. In your home, it applies. And it applies in the church. Everything rises and falls on leadership. When we have healthy, thriving leaders, we tend to have healthy, thriving fill-in-the-blank. But the opposite is also true. When we have scars leading, it leaves scars, right? So as we look at Titus chapter 1, what we're going to see is how important leadership is in for the church. And, and let me just kind of say this before we read our first passage. We want to be a healthy church. CBC Richmond Hill, we want to be a healthy church. And that means we have to take Titus seriously. It's going to show us what to do. It's going to show us how to put some things into order. And it's going to show it that it all begins with leadership. Now, many of you may hear that and think, well, I'm never going to be an elder in the church. right? I'm never going to be in leadership in the church. So what does that have to do with me? Before you, you know, disengage and start scrolling whatever new social media exists, um, hang in there. Because the truth is, there's, there's two truths to this. Even if you're not going to be an elder, even if you're not going to be a leader in the church, it's that you are commanded by Scripture to submit to the leadership of your local church. But secondly, all of the qualities we're going to look at through a healthy leader in a local church are, are qualities that we should all aspire to if we want to grow and mature in our faith. Okay? So it exists for all of us today. So let's go ahead and start. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, 
a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. All right, let's start off with a little bit of context as it regards Titus. When we approach any New Testament epistle or letter, there's three things that we need to know that really help cement what the, what the intent of that message is. The first is its author, Paul. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Shameless plug. You want to hear about Paul and learn more about Paul, stick with us till 2023 because we're going to launch with the book of Acts in August. We'll get to Paul in about 2023, okay? We'll learn a lot about the Apostle Paul. But Paul was a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and many believe that the letter of Titus was written by Paul in between his two imprisonments. So Paul was actually imprisoned twice. Now, if your memory is, is kind of thinking through this, it's because in the book of Acts, it concludes with Paul in prison. The book of Acts closes while Paul's awaiting trial in Rome. Well, church history tells us he was actually released from that first imprisonment. And what does Paul do when he's released from prison? What he lives to do, preach the gospel. Go to different churches and encouraging them with the gospel. And history tells us that he went to the Isle of Crete, which we're going to talk about in a second, and left Titus there. It's the same mission. He loved to live this way. He was entrusted by the command of Christ to preach the truth. And that's what Paul did in between his imprisonment. So he pins this letter to Titus on the Isle of Crete somewhere about 62 to 64 BC. So we know its author. Second thing we need to know about a letter is its audience. Who was this book written to? Titus. All right, wake up. We got coffee out there. Titus, written to Titus. Now, most of Paul's letters are written to churches or networks of churches, like the churches in Corinth or the church in Ephesus. This was written to a particular person by the name of Titus. So who was Titus? Well, we read in Titus chapter 1 that he was a true child of a common faith, a true child of a common faith. We believe that Titus was a convert of Paul, which is why he writes, you're my true child. But then he uses that word common faith. Why would he write common faith? Because Paul was an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, a Jew. Titus was Greek, a Gentile. And he's saying, though, that although you're a Greek and although you're a Gentile and although I, a Jew, we share a common faith because Scripture would teach us that the blood of Christ dissects. It, it, it just cuts through the division that we have, right? So he says, Titus, my true child, in a common faith. So Titus was a convert of Paul, but we also know that he was a co-laborer, a co-worker of Paul. In fact, we believe that Titus um, was Paul's strong right arm. Different leadership challenges require different leadership styles, right? Take Ephesus, for instance. Paul writes uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, to, to, to Timothy, who he left in Ephesus. Ephesus was um, a little bit more of a mature church. Um, Acts chapter 20 would tell us that Ephesus had its own elders in place. And if you read Timothy, you can kind of see, hey, just, just go to Ephesus and encourage them to just, just live in alignment with the truth that they already know. Titus was, was good for a church in Ephesus because Titus, let's just, let's just call it, Titus was a little bit soft. Titus was a proverbial mommy's boy. 2 Timothy 1 would say that. He was raised by his grandmother and by his mother, Eunice and Lois. We see in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy that Timothy constantly needed encouragement. Paul laced affirmation through those two letters. 
you know, Timothy, don't forget, fan into flame the gifts that God's given you. Be a good soldier, you know, for Jesus. Don't let anybody look down on you, you know, because you're young. And then he even, you know, concludes by saying, hey, and if your tummy's hurting, you know, take some Pepto-Bismol. He actually used wine there. But he was constantly having to encourage Timothy. Timothy was a little bit softer, that, that, but that ain't Titus. Let's contrast Timothy with Titus a little bit. Titus um, didn't wear skinny jeans. Probably didn't know what Lululemon was, you know, who, who does know what that is. Um, he's, not, he's not riding the elliptical at his gym. He's in Carhartt. Long before it was trendy, you know, CrossFit gymming, driving a Dodge Ram, whatever you think of a, a masculine man, that's what Titus is. And we know this from Scripture because when the elders in Jerusalem were hotly debating the fact that the gospel had actually reached the Gentiles, this is Acts chapter 14 and 15, this is a hot moment where the church is really debating what's going on. And the church in Jerusalem encourages Paul and Barnabas to come to Jerusalem and begin to testify as to what the gospel has done among the Gentiles. Who did Paul bring with him? Titus, Galatians chapter 2. When the church in Corinth continued to reject Paul's apostolic authority, and we begin to disintegrate into factions. And Paul writes what he calls a severe letter to the church in Corinth. Who does he send with that letter? Titus. Titus didn't shy away from conflict. Titus's ministry was forged in the fires of affliction. So we know the author. We know his audience. The third thing we need to know when we go to an epistle is the situation. What was going on in the context of Crete that would help us understand what's going on? The reason Crete needed Titus was because Crete was out of control. Crete demanded a, a pastor like Titus. Now I'm going to show us a, a quick map of Crete. Uh, I don't know if your latest cruise took you to the Mediterranean. Hopefully you can see this. Crete's a, a big island uh, right smack dab in the Mediterranean. And what we know is that uh, Crete during this time was notorious for its violence, its treachery, and its sexual corruption. 100 years before Christ was born, Polybius, a, a Greek historian, wrote, it is almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. So think about this situation that's happening. But regardless of its treachery, you can see that this was strategic, especially through the lens of someone like Paul, where the church would have been planted, because there's harbors everywhere around this, and it's connecting the Middle East to Asia Minor to Europe. This would be a strategic place for the gospel. But many believe that it wasn't Paul that actually planted these churches. What we find in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost is when Jews from all over the world gathered in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit fell and Peter preached such a bold message that there were 3,000 were added in a single day that there were Jews from Crete there. So we believe that the churches existed in Crete before Paul actually went, that Paul probably went to encourage them in their faith. But even though the church was there, what we read from Titus is that they were unhealthy. They were unordered. They were led astray by false doctrine. Their knowledge of the truth that we saw in that introduction was not, in fact, reflecting godliness. Paul perceived that they looked more like the gods around them, more like the worlds around them than like the God of the Bible. And what's interesting about Crete is that Crete was the birthplace of the Greek god Zeus. Cretans immortalized Zeus, worshipped Zeus. And you know what the qualities of Zeus um, they loved the most? His ability to seduce and deceive and to lie. Why Paul in the first thing says, listen, God never lies. And he goes on later to say, listen, you are liars, God isn't. He's contrasting that the God of the Bible is not like the gods of Crete. So although there were churches who had the knowledge of the truth, they weren't reflecting godliness, they were reflecting the world around them. They were liars, Titus 1 verse 12. 
Their men were violent and uncontrolled. We're going to look at that next week in Titus 2, verse 1. Their women were shirking their God-given responsibilities in the home in order to exploit societal freedoms. That's Titus 2. They looked more like Zeus than Jesus, more like the world than a healthy church. They were being led by scars, not Mufasas. Well, church, culture is never neutral, right? It's never neutral. It's always luring. It's always enticing. And it's corrupting the health of the churches in Crete. So what does Paul do? He leaves Titus in Crete. But he writes that for us today. If we want to be a healthy church, we need to hear the inspired word of God from Titus. So where does Paul start? Where should Titus start? Titus, I leave you in Crete. I need you to put some things in order. Where does he start? He starts with leadership because everything rises and falls on leadership. So let's look at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete. So you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. All right, this really isn't the heart of what we're going to share today, but I need to quickly point out a couple of things. I could, we could preach a 40-minute sermon on this verse about what, the, what an elder is, what the office of an elder is, but let me highlight two things really quickly. He says, I want you to appoint elders, plural, not singular. The church was never designed to be led by a singular, all-powerful visionary or dictator. You know, we have to hear this because the American church and the way we've done things over the last 20 years is, is to take a pastor with the upbeat, charisma, winsome smile, great communicator, has a great vision, and we as congregations are addicted to such a celebrity culture that, that we take that person, throw them on a platform, leverage advertising and marketing, expand that platform, all the while unconcerned for how the Bible says a church should be governed unconcerned for character, which we're going to get into in a minute. That's why we're also hurt by the church. That's why, that's why the world is so disenfranchised with our message. They're not rejecting the gospel. They're rejecting our credibility, right? Because how many pastors have you read about who have fallen over the last several months? We're not supposed to be led by some singular person. This is plural. It's elders. That's the pattern that Paul established in every church that he planted. I'm going to throw some scriptures on the screen. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting. Again, I just want to highlight elders. This is Acts 14, the beginning of Paul's ministry. He's appointing a plurality of elders. In Acts 20, he calls the elders of Ephesus to himself and gives them a beautiful, beautiful last goodbye. James 5.14, this is the elder in Jerusalem saying, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And I'm bringing these scriptures just to highlight the fact that it's a plurality. It's a plurality of elders. The second thing I want to see in verse 5 is he wants to appoint elders in every town, local. What that means is there on the Isle of Crete, there were churches everywhere. But he's saying you need elders in every local congregation. Why do I bring that up for us today? Many of you may not know, we are a church plant from Community Bible Church in Savannah, okay, right off Duran and Waters. That does not mean, though, that we can have elders there. Our elders have to be local, according to the Bible. So they're plural, and they are local. But what do we look for? What should we look for in a leader of the church? What should we look for in an elder? That's where we're going to spend um, the remainder of our time in today. So, verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. We'll start with above reproach. This literally means um, blameless or nothing against him. It means that if, if somebody hears you go to church, they're not like, really? 
They're not shocked by that. They're not surprised by you going to church. And if they hear that you're a leader in the church, they're not rolling their eyes. There's nothing out there that they would hold against you. You're blameless, living above reproach. There's no surprises. He did not say, hey, make sure they have an MBA. He did not say, make sure they have great work experience. He did not say, make sure that they've scaled a business before. He didn't start anywhere. Where did he start? Above reproach. Make sure that they are blameless. Why? Why is that so important for a leader in the church? It's because the witness of the church can and has been discredited by uncredible leaders. It starts with who we are, blameless, living above reproach. But how do you discern that? How do we know someone is actually blameless? Someone's actually living above reproach? Because the truth is, you can fake it on Sunday. Can't you? Anybody can smile, shake some hands, kiss some babies, tithe a little bit. Anybody can, can look above reproach on a Sunday. But you know where you can't fake it? Home, in front of your wife, in front of your kids. They know, who, know you for who you really are, and Paul drives it home. Hey, Titus, look for a healthy leader, and you know where to look? Not at their resume. Look at their home. Look at their home. Make sure that they're a husband of one wife. Okay, Stay with me here in Titus. A husband of one wife literally translates a one-woman man. This is not a case against polygamy. Okay, If you have multiple wives, yes, you are disqualified. Okay, But this is not a case for polygamy. He's not writing in polygamy because that wasn't normal on the Isle of Crete. He would not have been writing that into that time. So what is he writing about? Why is he saying literally a one-woman man? Does that mean that singles are disqualified for leadership in the church? What about those who have been divorced and, or, or widowed and remarried? What does that mean for us to be a one-woman? Is he writing into that? Again, I'll preach a whole sermon on this, but I'm going to move quickly and kind of answer those questions. There are a lot of different beliefs about what that means, but I want to speak into it really quick regarding singleness. I do not believe that it necessitates marriage. I believe singles can be elders. Why? Paul was single. Titus was single. The head of the church, Jesus Christ himself, was single. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 7 that in times of hard ministry times, it's better that the leaders of the church are actually single so they can give themselves more to the things of God than to the things of this world. So why write it? Why wouldn't he just say, hey, singles can be? Because he's writing to a normative context and a normative culture in a, in a time of history. Just as in our day, elders, elderly men would have been married. It would have been more normative than to have singles. So he's writing into a normative context. But what about divorce? The Bible doesn't prohibit divorce, but it does lay biblical grounds for it. So for an elder to be considered in the church, the divorce would have to be in alignment with biblical grounds. Y'all, I just want to say this really quickly. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. If that, if that has occurred in Christ, you're cleansed, washed, redeemed by his blood, you do not stand accused or condemned, but be a leader in the church, it has to be in accordance with the biblical grounds. So, again, I know I just opened up Pandora's, you know, and then I'm just going to move right along. <laughs> so what does it mean, though? Going back to a one-woman man, what does it mean? It simply means this. Is he above reproach? Is he a man perceived as living in honesty, faithfulness, and devotion to his spouse? Does he have a healthy marriage? Not a, not a perfect marriage, not a marriage that's void of all strife or, or, or anything like that, but is, is he faithful? Does his marriage reflect the love and the forgiveness and grace of Christ? Is he a man who hates lust, runs from adultery physically, and hates pornography? 
That's what we're looking for, someone who lives blamelessly in response to his wife. If only he would stop there. He moves on to this incredibly difficult statement. Children, their children are to be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Moves right to their children. It makes me shudder as a dad of four, one who's screaming right across the hall. Amen. So what does that mean for me as a dad? What does that mean for leaders of the church? There are a few caveats here that, that are going to help us understand, and I'm going to lay those out in a second, but, but I don't want to move past the fact he put it in there for a reason. And the reason it's there is, is because of this. Church, it is God's design that parents, that fathers, that you men are responsible for the proper nurture and upbringing of your children. Ephesians 6, verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Let me just remind you really quickly, and you can start today if you haven't started. Culture is never neutral. If we are not discipling our children, somebody else is. And the responsibility is for the fathers. Men, this is your responsibility. And Paul is saying that if, if a man is, is not uh, or unwilling or unable to take responsibility for the discipleship of his own home, he should not be fit for taking the discipleship of a church. It begins in the home. Now, now what are the caveats? First thing is it says children, okay, plural. Again, it doesn't mean you have to have a thousand kids. I do have four, okay. What does it say? It means children. It's, it's not saying that we should put a magnifying glass on the beliefs and the actions of one single child. It's saying that we should look at the overall pattern of their home. Is the discipline of, of the gospel occurring within that home? Secondly, the word believers is better translated faithful. Make sure they're believers. It means faithful. Faithful is measured over time. It means we need to look at the beliefs and actions over time. So, so here we are. If we look at what does it mean to be a leader of the church, there needs to be, if, if there are patterns of disbelief, uh, disobedience, rebellion, that should be really alarming. Uh, but if there are occasional difficulties, seasons of doubt, um, those should be humanized. Those, those should, should require a congregation coming alongside those kids and praying for them and encouraging them, right? Those should be humanized. Because the truth is, and you know this, you can't force your kids to believe anything. You couldn't force them to eat breakfast this morning. I try, we try all the time. You know, it's, it's futile. You can't force your kids to believe. But you are still held accountable and responsible for creating an atmosphere in your home where you're planting and nurturing the gospel and allowing God to bring the increase. So we discern the right leaders for the church, not by looking at worldly success, but by looking at their homes. Because the truth is this. There are a lot of successful leaders out there in the world who are unfit for leadership in the church. There are a lot of really, really good businessmen that make terrible husbands and fathers. Right? The standards for leadership in the church begins with someone who's above reproach, and we discern that by looking at their home. Secondly, we look at their character. Again, still not getting to their rap sheet, still not looking at their worldly success. We're looking at character. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be a proper approach. And, and that word steward is talking about someone who manages the household on behalf of somebody else. So if a leader of the church is managing God's household, it begs to make the argument that they make sure they're managing their own. Okay, so going back to that second point. So let's look at their character. He must be above reproach. I heard that twice. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He runs through a list of knots. 
An elder should not be arrogant. That means self-willed. Doesn't have to always be right. Can actually humble himself and accept the opinions of others. And an elder can't be arrogant or self-willed because they have to be consumed with the will of God. Can't be quick-tempered. Let me breathe. This can be me. But this doesn't mean that you can't be passionate about issues. It just means that your response to someone who disagrees with your passion is impulsive. It's controlled. You're not quick-tempered. Not a drunkard. Literally translates overindulgent. That definitely regards alcohol. I would argue it regards other things too, but it, it begins with alcohol. He actually writes to Timothy the same thing, saying, not given to much wine. Now, biblically, we can't be dogmatic. I'm about to Pandora's box real quick again. We can't be dogmatic about alcohol um, regarding abstinence biblically. But church experience, and, and I would argue Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, would show that alcohol is addictive. It leads to overindulgence, and a mature believer would view alcohol through Romans 14, through 1 Corinthians 8, which means don't use your freedoms to impact the faith of others, right? Because the truth is, elder, mature member of the church, you may be able to have one drink, but you could be sitting next to somebody, shepherding somebody that can't, that needs eight, nine, ten. So, not overindulgent. Everybody feel good? Feel good? All right. Keep moving. Not violent. Literally means a striker. That, duh, you know. Our elder meeting should not look like UFC. <laughs> but the whole saying of sticks and stones may break my bones, whoever wrote that was a liar. Because words hurt too. And an elder needs to be accountable for the words that come out of their mouth and make sure they're not violent, not abusive with their words. Finally, not greedy for gain. Someone who's honest and integrous as regards money, but also someone who doesn't need to keep up with the Joneses. Someone who's not uh, struggling with constant discontent as it regards money matters. Those are things that they should not be. Let me run through the list of things they should be. Hospitable, concerned with the welfare of others, a lover of good, promoting the good of others, self-controlled. Y'all know who the hardest person to lead on the planet is? Me. (laughs) Leading yourself is hard. That's why Proverbs 16.32 says that he who can control his own spirit is better than he who can overtake a city. You have to be self-controlled, upright, just living righteously, holy, set apart, devout, committed, disciplined, referencing that of a Greek athlete, someone who is rigorous and consistent in their biblical disciplines while they're growing in godliness. That's what an elder should be, and not just for himself. A mature follower of Christ, a leader in the church, should not be these for themselves, but because he represents the household of God. That's the point here. So we look for someone who is blameless or above reproach by looking at their home life, by looking at their character. But we also need to make sure they're holding firm to the truth of the gospel, that they are holding to the gospel. Let's read the remainder of our passage together in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. I mean, tell us how you feel, Paul. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, literally muzzled them, they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. 
But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They're scars. They're scars leading prod rock. So what should a healthy leader of a healthy church do? They should hold fast to the gospel. That phrase of holding firm to the trustworthy word it is, is referencing a very specific doctrine. It's pulling our attention to a specific set of beliefs, namely the gospel of grace, namely the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, that leads to hope in eternal life that Paul lays out in 1 Timothy 1, I mean, for, in Titus chapter 1. It's a specific doctrine. This does not mean that I or any elder of the church should have all things of all theology figured out. Oh, there's so much room for mystery in our faith. So I'm not talking about pre-post or amillennialism. I'm not talking about predestination or reprobation or all these secondary things. I'm thinking about the primacy of the gospel. We have to hold firm to the primacy of the gospel. The gospel that Paul was entrusted by the command of Christ to preach. Titus 2 verse 11 would say it's the gospel of grace. Let me remind us of what that is. Namely that you and I were created by God to be in relationship with him, to follow his orders, to obey his commands for our good and for his glory. But we all know the bad news. Instead of doing that, we've, we've sinned. You, me, not just us, like you personally, I personally have sinned and fallen short of the standard that God created us for. And the consequence, that, uh, consequence of that was, was separation, a severance. Instead of walking in the relationship we are created, sin severed that. Temporarily and eternally. Romans says the wages, the, the consequence of our sin is death, physical and spiritual. If you go back to Titus 1 verse 3, it says, before the ages began. There's some good news here. Before the ages began, try to conceptualize that. Before the ages began, God determined to demonstrate his love for us that while we were still sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. Christ to pay the wages of your sin, taking your place as a substitute atonement. You know what the result of that death in Christ is? Through faith in him? A restored relationship today and forever. That hope of eternal life. Titus 2 would go on to say he gave himself up for us to redeem us and to purify us. Elders, healthy leaders hold firm to that truth. The faithful word of God's grace. His home life and his character reflect the power of that message. And his lips should ever be expressing it. Ever be instructing it as Paul writes to Titus. But he also has to rebuke those who contradict it. That word rebuke is Muslim. Put a muzzle over their mouth if they're teaching a false gospel. They are scars in Crete. Unhealthy leaders. Leaders that are contradicting the gospel of grace. And there are scars here. Scars among us. Scars in America. There are scars everywhere. Leading us to believe a false gospel. Paul says they upset whole families with the teaching of this gospel. And this false gospel is clear in Titus 1. They're telling the churches that grace is insufficient. That, that you don't just need grace. You need grace and something else. It's a gospel of gospel plus. You're adding something to the gospel. And what was it in the Isle of Crete? That they needed to devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people. Hey, Jesus is good, but you need to make sure you continue to follow these things so you can earn God's favor and acceptance. It's a gospel of works. Guys, our works can never earn us God's favor and acceptance. 
His work on the cross did that, right? We don't do good works to earn his merit, earn his favor, to earn his attention. We do good works because we're so blown away by him allowing us to be in a relationship with him. It's a response of grace. Grace moves us to godliness, not a gospel of works. And it upsets whole households, and it, and it requires a staunch rebuke for two reasons. If you adhere to a gospel of works, one of the, one of the results in your heart is pride. When you get before God one day and they say, why should I let you in? You say, well, look at all the things I've done. All the demons that I've cast out in your name, all the people that I've healed in your name, look at everything that I've done for you. I stand here upon my own work. Jesus says, get away from me. I never knew you. Pride comes before the fall. And if we're teaching a gospel plus works, we're upsetting whole families. The second natural response to a gospel of works, and probably the most common one, is despair. Maybe if I just pray a little bit more, maybe if I just go to church a little bit more, maybe if I tithe a little bit more, they have serve teams, I better sign up for a serve team. Maybe if I can feed the poor, if I can do more, maybe then God will love me, maybe he'll accept me. But every night, I know this rat race. You go to bed going, I know it wasn't enough today. Okay, I'll wake up and I'll try more. That will slowly or quickly lead you to despair. Guys, the, the gospel of grace destroys both of those. Destroys pride destroys despair. It humbles us by looking at a Savior who was God but became man and died a criminal's death. Humbles us. It also gives us hope, knowing I can't do it all on my own. He did it for me. That's the gospel of grace, and that's the gospel that a healthy leader would hold firm to. Then he concludes with this really interesting um, verse. I'm going to read it and explain it real quick. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. If you read that, the understanding of to the pure, all things are pure, to the defiled, all things are defiled, it's a direct reference to Jesus' own teaching in Mark chapter 7. Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees who believed in this gospel plus or this gospel and, and said, in vain do people worship me, teaching as doctrines, teaching as the gospel, the commandments of men. And he goes on to remind them, hey, there's nothing outside that can clean you or defile you. There's nothing out there. Your works can't clean you. Your heart has to be changed. The inside has to be changed. He's saying, so if you're pure, if, you're, if you believe in the purity of the gospel, you've been pure. You've been made pure. So now your works are pure. We're changed from the inside out, not changed from the outside in. Outside in is a gospel of works. It's a gospel plus. It's a gospel and. Inside out is the gospel of grace. And that's the gospel that leaders are chosen to hold fast to. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And although we're tempted to flock to celebrity pastors with, with grand visions and incredible gifts and big brands, blinding charisma, we have to remember that a church, this church, is the household of God. And the head of that home, which is who? Jesus. Jesus, not me. The head of that home gets to dictate how that, that, that house is ran. We're stewards. There must be a plurality of elders. They need to be local. An elder must be blameless or above reproach, and we discern that by looking at their home and by looking at their character. And they must hold firm to the gospel of grace. And even though most of you will never hold the title of elder, maybe you won't be in leadership in this church or in any other church, this applies to you because you, you're, you yearn, I hope, I pray, to be a mature follower of Christ. And these are all character traits of those.